Welcome to the Cars Deep and Wide podcast. This is episode two with Russell Moore. Well, hello, everyone. I couldn't be more excited about my second guest on the podcast. A number of years ago, I was on campus in Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and I had the opportunity to take a couple of my theology classes with this rising star professor named Russell Moore. Well, since that point, he's moved on from Southern. He was hired as president of the ERLC of the SBC, and God has used him in tremendous ways. It seems like every night you turn on Fox News or CNN and he's there, he's all over the internet, and God has really used this book that he has authored that is so helpful called Onward. And you might have also heard something recently about a presidential candidate having a few words to say about Dr. Moore. I hope you enjoy this recent conversation I had with him. We have a very special guest on the podcast today, a man that recently Donald Trump labeled via Twitter a terrible representative of evangelicals and all they stand for. I want to welcome the man Trump called the nasty guy with no heart, Dr. Russell Moore. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you today. I might have told you this story before, but back when I was in seminary, my wife came home one time from the Seminary Wives Institute and she was kind of disappointed, and I asked her why, and she said, well, there was this guest lecturer the week before. You know, he was subbing for Dr. Moeller, and she was bummed that Dr. Moeller was back, So, and that was you, so <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, but... No. Yeah. Um, how's your family doing? Is it? Are your boys actually driving? Did I see that? Yeah, they're, uh, well, they're, they're not driving, but they're taking, they, they took a driving class. <laughs> and so, wow. uh, and so they they were driving with a driving instructor, and and uh, and of course now they do simulators and everything. And so I just had to make it very clear: just because I'm putting you through this class, that doesn't mean you're going to be driving soon. It just means this is the first in a process. So wow, yeah, I just remember when you first adopted them. I was in seminary at the time, and it's just amazing. Yeah, they're 15 back. now. Wow. Well, I'd like to start with talking about your position with the SBC. What is the ERLC exactly? What do you do for them? And, and what led you away from teaching seminary students? Well, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is um, the, the arm of uh, the denomination that really does two things. Um, it, it speaks uh, to churches about um, moral questions, ethical questions. Um, what does it mean to, to, to apply the gospel to, to everyday life? And so that means um, equipping churches to think through everything from – um, racial reconciliation and marriage and family, uh, parenting questions to, um, you know, advanced reproductive technology and, uh, uh, living wills and, and, and all of those, those questions that, that churches, uh, would have. And then secondly, we speak for the churches, uh, to the broader culture. And so we, we deal with government leaders. Um, with uh, the White House, with the Congress, with uh, foreign governments uh, on issues um, dealing with uh, religious freedom, with human dignity, with uh, with all of those those sorts of, of policy questions, and also with the media, uh, and so uh, explaining uh, the mm -hmm. convictions that we hold uh, to to people in 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 media. 
Yeah, well, on that latter part of the job description, if you would talk a little bit about Trump's comments. I mean, could you have ever imagined such a thing? And what's your world been like since since that moment when it first popped up on Twitter? Well, you know, um, it didn't bother me uh, at all. Uh, it's uh, it's I've told uh, several people uh, just this week that actually that was not um, that was not the the most significant thing that happened that week, even related to to that particular controversy. Mm-hmm. It was that there's a, a Christian parody site, satire site called the Babylon Bee. Mm-hmm. That did a, a joke article that said that I'd been so brokenhearted about being <laughs> insulted by Donald Trump that I'd just gone on this, you know, drunken spree. And, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and so we had so many people who took that at face value and thought that had really happened. And so wow. people are calling the house and are you you all OK? And what can we do for you? We had to. <laughs> You'll say, no, this is a joke. It's a satire. It's not real. And, uh, so that actually took up much more of my time than Donald Trump did. Wow. Well, I heard that that was, that some people had done that, but I didn't know it was that widespread. Oh, yeah. It was, we had a lot of people really concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, um, to talk about that, why do you think he tried to tear you down like that? I mean, what's your, what's your message been as you've been on these talk shows and, you know, what do you think he was trying to address? Well, I think it's because um, of what I'm concerned about is not particularly uh, the election, uh, who's up and who's down, who's winning and who's losing. My, my concern is for the witness of the church. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think that we we are going to have to live with um, uh, several things. I mean, one of them being that you have some uh, so-called evangelical leaders who have been really vocal uh, over the past 20, 30 years, that character matters uh, in terms of uh, public life, who are now uh, saying that character doesn't matter when it applies to someone who's on, on their side uh, of, of right. the issue. Um, and I think that's, that's really, really dangerous uh, for the church. And then you also have a situation where uh, you have a, a church and sometimes some leaders who've been willing to, to pontificate on everything, uh, who are completely silent when you have, uh, issues of race baiting, uh, and you have, uh, you have, uh, issues of, of, of calling for war crimes and, and, and these, these sorts of, of things. Uh, so you really have a domesticated, uh, church. And so what I, I've said is, um, we have to be the sort of, of people who are willing to speak prophetically, uh, which means uh, saying, as John the Baptist does to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. You know, and and uh, and and the sort of celebration that we see right now of uh, of what previous generations of evangelical Christians would have rightly defined as cultural decay. Uh, that now is is uh, is being celebrated. I think that's a that's a moral problem internal to uh, the, the people of God, even before you get to what's happening in the country. And so, I mean, he doesn't doesn't like that sort of uh, criticism, and and he he tends to um, he tends to um, um, try to ridicule and intimidate people who don't uh, agree with him. And he's been very effective at doing that. Um, so. Well, one of the things I've appreciated about your service there is that you are broaching subjects that Baptists and evangelicals have largely 
ignored. And so it's as if you're trying to get two groups of people mad at you. Um, but would you talk just a little bit about your heart for immigration reform, for fighting racism? You know, adoption, of course, is close to your heart, and I think it should be close to the gospel's heart. Can you just talk about that angle in terms of challenging the church? Yeah, well, I think we, I think we have to have, um, we have to have an understanding of the image of God, uh, and that, and that the image of God is not earned. Uh, the image of God is not, uh, is not something that people aspire to. Uh, the image of God is something that everyone is created, uh, in. Uh, everyone is created bearing the image of God. And so if we're people who, if we're people who uh, really believe what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, then that ought to define for us what matters and that ought to define for us who matters. Hmm. And so we ought to be the people who care about vulnerable uh, people yeah. that the rest of society would, would, would say don't matter. Uh, and, and I think the problem is it's kind of – if you notice what Jesus taught about with the rich man and Lazarus, um, if you were to read the obituary, uh, if there were such a thing for the rich man, Lazarus would not be included in that. That's, he, he's not defining himself by Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Jesus, though, does. And Lazarus sat at his door. Uh, and so the rich man's life is bound up with the life of, uh, of Lazarus. And, uh, our lives are too. And so we have to, we have to be paying attention then to who are the people who are peripheral, and uh, invisible to us, whether mm. those are unborn children, uh, whether those are uh, disabled uh, people uh, in our congregations that, that people want to just pass by, whether that's the poor, whether those are uh, immigrant families uh, around us who are who are uh, being harassed or, or bullied, whether that's persecuted uh, uh, Christians or other religious minorities uh, around the world whether it's trafficked women, or orphans and widows, we have to be paying attention to all of those stories because our stories are bound up with theirs uh, even, even when we don't know it and we don't recognize it. That's right. You know, I, I consider myself still a younger Christian, but I'm getting in my mid-40s, but I have a church largely of younger believers, and mm -hmm. I think the church has failed so long to speak out on those issues, and I think it's it's really made a generation fairly skeptical. So I really appreciate you doing that and the way God is using you in that way. Well, I think one of the challenges is that um, one of the easiest things to do is simply to say, um, what is my tribe and what does my tribe already think? And let me just articulate what that is. And I think you can see that on the right, and I think you can see that on the left. That's right. And so if you want to have an easy life uh, on the more progressive side of things, then you talk about sex trafficking and you talk about racial justice and you talk about uh, immigrants and refugees, but you don't talk about the unborn. You don't talk about God's design for human sexuality. You just leave those things silent. Um, that you're not a leader then. Uh, you're, 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 just, you're, just, you're just following your, your tribe. And on the right – um, the easiest thing in the world to do is to talk about abortion and talk about sexuality, but not to talk about racial justice and not to talk about all of these things. And why? Because because what we want to do is we don't want to be, um, you know, as John says in John 12, the religious leaders did not want to be put out of the synagogue. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we all have our synagogues, uh, that we don't want to be put out of. Uh, and, and I think that, that the fundamental problem there, as Jesus identifies it, 
or as John identifies it, is they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so we have to constantly be in our churches and in our families and so forth, uh, constantly avoiding that and saying, am I really trying my best to pay attention to um, all of the people and situations around me and not just those that fit into the whatever whatever preordained boxes that, that people make for us. Hmm, that's right. That's good. Well, you probably heard this question a time or two. We've got a choice now between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. What are we supposed to do? I mean, what advice would you give? Well, uh, I, I don't endorse candidates uh, at all. What I, what I do say is you need to pay attention to what it is that you're giving moral approval to. And so recognize what you're doing with, uh, with a vote. And what happens with a vote um, is that you are delegating authority to someone who is telling you how that person is going to act on your behalf. Uh, and so you are Romans 1. Uh, giving approval uh, to whatever it is uh, that you're, uh, whoever it is that you're, you're, you're delegating that that authority to, and so that that would be uh, my counsel, and and to say and 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 forgetting this election for a moment, uh, and just speaking more generally, uh, I do not agree uh, with people who say, well, you always have to simply uh, choose the lesser of two evils. Of whatever, uh, of whatever the two, uh, the two options are that are given to you by the duopoly, um, uh, of, of political parties in American life. Um, I mean, the, the Republican party, uh, was a third party. Uh, it was a, a party that was, that was created and it, and when the Republican party is created, uh, it's created as a, as an anti-slavery, uh, party and, uh, it seemed really, uh, eccentric, and it seemed as though it it wasn't uh, going to succeed, uh, but but ultimately it did, and it had to go through that that that, that early stage of being kind of the gadfly. Uh, we're not going to go in. We're not going to go in the Whig direction, and we're not going to go in the Democratic direction. We're going to go in a new direction uh, toward um, uh, toward abolition, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that's what's that's what's called for in American life. Well, as we get even closer to the election as a pastor, one thing that I've noticed and dealt with is just the struggle, uh, particularly on Facebook, with believers who endorse one of the candidates. You know, And the question I have is just how do we call both of them to accountability while also preserving humility, preserving the unity of the church? I mean, how does this not become a dividing thing for the people of God as we, as we look at this election? Well, I think uh, this... This year is is probably um, uh, um, a, a more difficult year than than others uh, to learn this because there there is there there are some things about this year that are unique. So there are some things that are that are kind of features of this year's election rather than bugs uh, that that are different uh, from some other years. But but what I would say across the board, really, regardless of whether you're in uh, what year you're in, in, in the future now, recognize that part of the problem we have in American life is that, uh, politics, uh, politics has become a religion, uh, for many people mm-hmm. and their political parties, uh, and ideologies have become their church. 
And so uh, sharing opinions on Facebook has become a means of communion. Uh, and so we have to be the people who are constantly um, constantly asking to be sanctified from that. You know, and, and that means seeing our primary identity as being uh, in Christ and our primary identity as being part of the body of Christ, not as being Democrats or Republicans or conservatives or progressives or even as Americans. Um, and I think that that takes a constant set of uh, self-diagnostic disciplines uh, to be able to ask, is this the case? And I think sometimes the, the political debates really aren't even about the political issues. Um, they're, they're about um, one side feeling as though the other side uh, believes it to be stupid or evil. And so self-protection uh, that, that comes out in these in these really often inane social media uh, spats back and forth. Um, and now there's a place for you know, these issues are important. And and, uh, and some of these issues are uh, extinction level sometimes. Uh, but we, we do that as Christians. Um, and so that means that we're we're. We're constantly asking, is this the best way for me to articulate my views? And sometimes that's going to be with uh, satire. Jesus uses that. Uh, you go tell that fox uh, that this is what I have to say, he says about Herod. Sometimes uh, that is with a gentle sort of consider this. Sometimes that's with a much more direct uh, approach. But. You have to ask yourself as you're doing that, am, am I, am I choosing this particular mode of discourse in order to seek to persuade my fellow citizen to consider my viewpoint? Or am I using this mode of discourse simply to, to vent, uh, and to, to express myself in some way? And I, sometimes you're going to get that wrong. Uh, and, and everybody's going to get that wrong. And that, that's, that's, Fine, you learn from that and you, you pick up and you move on. But I think that ought to be the major question. And then to, and then to realize too that with, with social questions or what some people might even define as political questions, um, there are, there are different levels of those, uh, in the same way there are in terms of personal morality. So, uh, you know, in your local church, uh, you're not going to have, if you've got a guy, um, in your local church who is uh, committing adultery with his stepmother, as is happening in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you're not going to say, oh, well, let's not disrupt the unity of the church. Let's just all agree to disagree on that. No, no, no. This is a, this is a clear issue uh, that has to be addressed. That doesn't mean that you're then going to have um, a list of answers for every particular issue of personal ethics that someone may have. Here's what you do with schooling your child. Here's what you do about, um, you know, celebrating Halloween or whatever. I mean, there are going to be lots of issues that Romans 14, we say, well, we're going to agree to disagree on those things. I think the same thing is true when it comes to those, those social and, and political issues, which the Bible doesn't make that division that we do between personal, uh, issues and so-called social issues. Uh, the prophets uh, speak to both, intertwined together, and James does too. He talks about maintaining the tongue, and he talks about the way that you treat uh, you treat workers uh, on your land. And so I think there are going to be some issues where the church is going to speak really definitively 
uh, and, and has to say, uh, we're the people who stand with unborn children when uh, the rest of the world says that they're nothing but uh, they're nothing but tissue. Uh, we're the people who stand up against racism and race baiting. Uh, when the rest of the world thinks that that's um, that that's an effective means of of identity politics, you know, and and, and so mm-hmm. forth. And then there are gonna be other issues. Our church, we don't have a position on gun control. We don't have a position on on energy policy. And so uh, we're the we're the people who can agree to disagree on those things as mm-hmm. good Christians. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, I'm here in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, a long time ago, now I was walking around on campus, and I was involved in college Republicans thinking I was going to go the political route and I just got really disenchanted with it. And mm-hmm. as I look around me, I just see quite a few younger people that are just pretty frustrated and disenchanted. What would you say to those people? What, how should they engage politically? How does that relate to our witness with the gospel? How should we prioritize thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, what I would say is the the people who are the most enthusiastic about political engagement are the people who are um, who are the people who should not be involved in it, <laughs> and, and the people who do have that sense of reluctance and that sense of uh, disillusionment are the people who who may well should be. Hmm. Uh, and okay. so it's you know in some ways it, it's kind of like. Um, you know, I had a, a police officer who was who was talking to me about um, he he had the he had the duty of assigning people to uh, to, to particular uh, cases, and he said you don't want that guy who really wants to be on the scene after a gory murder. You, you really want yeah. the guy who who will do it, but who has a sense of of heart sickness about it. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to to political life. Um, the people who who tend to uh, find their identity in just being quarrelsome um, can easily find their way into political life and can succeed at that in a way that is really damaging to the soul. And people who are prone toward a kind of utopianism, uh, we can we can we can change the world. Uh, often tend to be drawn into political life in a way that's really dangerous to them and to and to other people, and so a certain sense of that skepticism and distance is actually a good a good thing. And I mean, when I'm, I'm dealing with I'm dealing with politicians every day, all the time at at every level, and one of the things that that I find and and it's kind of constantly coming up is the fact that they're dealing with the same issues that anybody else is dealing with, with loneliness, with self-doubt, um, with questions of meaning of life, uh, with all of those, with all of those things. And so it's easy sometimes for us just to see politicians on, on television and just assume that they're all kind of cartoon characters or they're, they're all superheroes or supervillains. And, and that's just not the case. They're, they're, they're people who are, um, in, in some cases, some of these politicians are really, really deplorable people, uh, who are really shallow and, um, and, and soul dead. But that's a bipartisan phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And that's, that kind of goes, <laughs> that goes across all the ideologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, some of these people are really, 
are, are really uh, good uh, men and women who are just trying their best uh, to serve the citizenry. And some of them are doing effectively and some of them aren't. And I think we need to have that, that sort of complex, nuanced view of, of these people as people. Mm, that's hopeful. Well, I wanted to ask in the time we have left just a question or two about your book, Onward. I love that book, by the way. It took me too Thank long you. to get to it, but – it was so helpful. I really want to get it into a lot more people's hands. But what's the main thing that you're trying to share with the church with that book? How are you hoping God will use Onward? You know, I find that um, there are Christians who are reacting to some of the cultural changes around them uh, with fear. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the fear manifests itself in a couple of ways. I mean, some people I find are fearful and so they become silent or they even capitulate uh, to to some negative things in the culture around them. And then some people are so fearful that they panic. And um, and that manifests itself sometimes in this kind of outrage and hostility. Mm-hmm. And I find that really what's at the bottom of all of that is a bad theology. So you, you have people who have a kind of um, – creation, fall, redemption, restoration uh, framework, but they're not, they're not using the Bibles. Uh, they're using this creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative of America. Hmm, and so there was right. a time when things were good and people have different points of nostalgia when things are good. It's the 50s or the 80s or the 1770s or whenever it is. And then something bad happened. Uh, prayers taken out of school or uh, Woodstock in the summer of love or whatever it is that they think uh, is the fall. And, and then we reclaim America uh, for Christ and here's how we do it. And for some people, it's through um, this really uh, amorphous and mystical understanding of revival this kind of a, a national revival where the nation kind of gets its act together uh, rather than the way the Bible defines revival. For some people, that's in terms of um, just getting the right policies and the right culture in, in, in play. And so I think that's, that's ultimately really damaging uh, to, to the church's understanding of who we are. Uh, and so I think we have to have, I think we have to have a, an approach to the culture that isn't fearful. And it recognizes we're not dealing with anything different. I mean, we have different manifestations of fallenness and brokenness at different times and in different cultures. But it's the same reign of death uh, that the scripture talks about. And uh, the gospel is just as powerful as the gospel has always been. And so we ought to be the people who have confidence um, in that because we... We know, um, we know what Jesus has promised us. Uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the kind of cringing, fearful, um, sort of Christianity or the kind of angry, hostile form of Christianity, uh, I think is not, is not going to be, uh, is not what we need. Uh, we need a, we need a Christianity that knows who we are, defined by the kingdom of God that knows how to articulate that and then knows how to embody that in the way that we live together within the church um, and express ourselves uh, to the outside world. And and we see people who disagree with us as our mission field. Hmm. And that means that we have hard conversations and we're willing to, we're willing to bear shame and to bear reproach as Jesus does. 
but we're also willing to speak as Jesus does and as Paul teaches us to with kindness uh, to those who disagree because we know the power of the Spirit is able to transform and change. That's helpful. You know, as I try to lead a church to, to that thinking, I mean, we're in Babylon, right? But we're still, still supposed to love the Babylonians. We're still supposed to try to reach them, to share the gospel. And yeah. I really appreciate that message from the book. Well, what what would you say as you look around America today are things that really encourage you and that should encourage the church? It's easy to focus on all the bad things that are happening that I'm kind of with you that it's probably not as bad as first century Greco-Roman times. But yeah. what what um, evidence of God's grace do you see that encourage you? Oh, well, I'm I'm far more encouraged than I am discouraged. I mean, when you look at when you look at the next generation of the church, um, I think things are better than they have been in a long, long, long time. Uh, and, you know, you, I, I hear a lot of um, a lot of people, not, not just within the church, but just kind of within American culture generally bashing millennials uh millennials are selfish and they're entitled and they're lazy and they're and sure can you find examples of that um out there in in american culture of course you can but when i'm looking at the church the next generation um is is i think in in the best shape that we've seen in american life in a long time and then when you look at what's happening what god is doing around the world there is a great deal of encouragement. I mean, God is doing unbelievable things with the church in China, in Korea, in Cuba, in Iran. And, um, and, and we're, we're part of that because we're part of the, the body of Christ. And so I think there's, there's a great deal, uh, to celebrate right now. Amen. Well, Dr. Moore, I'm so thankful for you. I was thankful for your, your teaching ministry and now your ministry with the ERLC. Whenever you got that position, I was just pumped because I, I knew that you would be talking about the things you are and trying to encourage the church to be bold and not fearful. And I'm incredibly grateful. And I know that you're no doubt taking a ton of heat from every direction. But thanks. Thanks from me. And I know a lot of other people want to echo that as well. But, and also well, thanks for allowing me to talk to you. For a while well, now. It's, it, it's my honor uh, to to talk to you, and thankful for you and for your church and your family, and um, and it was it was a joy to to reconnect with you for a few minutes. God bless and, and thanks a bunch. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Moore. Definitely check out his book Onward at Amazon or bookstores everywhere. And don't miss our next episode when we'll talk parenting with Scott and Laura Gutwein. See you next time. 